Well, if you do have a Bible with you uh, this evening, I'm turning back to that passage that we read from in Job, Job chapter 8. Please turn with me uh, back to that passage. And uh, I want to turn your attention uh, especially to uh, the verse that we find there in verse 13. We want to, I want to consider with you uh, the majority of this chapter with you, but just notice verse 13 in particular. So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. The hypocrite's hope shall perish. And you'll see on your sheet that our title for this evening is The Hypocrite's Hopelessness. The Hypocrite's Hopelessness. Now, I'm sure you know the story of Job very well. This man of incredible wealth, this man who is described in chapter 1 as the greatest of all the men of the East. He was a wise man, a man described by the Lord as being perfect and upright, one that eschewed evil. He feared God. He was a man of incredible possessions, wasn't he? And you can read there in chapter 1, it records how this godly man, Job, lost everything in one day. And you can read the account there, how he lost 500 oxen, 500 asses. They were stolen. 7,000 sheep consumed by fire. 3,000 camels carried away. His servants were slain by the edge of the swords. And perhaps the saddest of all the things, he lost his seven sons and his three daughters when the house where they were eating and drinking fell upon them. And as if matters couldn't get any worse for Job, you go on into chapter 2, and Satan strikes Job down with boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. And of course, the only relief that Job could get was scratching himself with shards of broken pottery. And in chapter 2, I'm sure as you know the story, his three friends hear about the afflictions that have come upon Job. And they come to console with him and to mourn with him. You read that in chapter 2 and verse 11. That Now when Job's three friends heard of this evil that was come upon him, they came everyone from his own place. And we have these three men, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Sophar. And they come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And the rest of the book really details for us the wisdom and the counsel, in inverted commas, that they sought to give to Job in all his trials and afflictions. And there's a pattern to the book, uh, and you can follow the pattern. One of the friends speaks to Job. Job is allowed to reply to their accusations and their wisdom and counsel. And then the next friend speaks, and Job replies, and so on. And Job gives his wisdom in return. Now, as we, as we come to this chapter this evening, in, in chapter 8, now we have to be very careful. We always have to be very careful as we approach the book of Job, because much of what Job's friends say is purely man's wisdom. They are mere men, and they give simply man's wisdom at times and man's logic, and not God's wisdom. And often what they say contains good theology, but the application is awful. So as we come to the book of Job, we have to have this in the back of our mind that often what they say needs to be uh, viewed uh, from that perspective, with that, through that lens. We need to be careful and take what they say, as it were, with a pinch 
of salts. And in actual fact, when you get to the end of the book, God, of course, condemns these three friends, so-called, for the counsel that they had given to Job. And of course, it's also worth adding at this point that some of the things that Job says in reply, even though he was a godly man and a perfect man, some of his words were rash and unwise. And so as we approach this speech here in chapter 8, you'll notice it's given by Bildad the Shuhite, one of these friends, one of these men who brings man's wisdom. We have to come, therefore, and exercise a degree of caution. We, of course, have to, we're told, aren't we, to believe not every spirit, but we're to try the spirits. And as we come to this chapter, we need to come with a degree of caution, uh, as I said. Now, Bildad in this chapter here, in chapter 8, he's extremely callous. He's giving his views to Job as to why Job has been afflicted. He's giving his reasons why he believes Job has suffered so much affliction in these past uh, days. And he says there in verse 2, he says, How long wilt thou speak these things? He's got this, he's very unfeeling towards Job. As I said, he's a friend. You can't really believe that Job would have a, such a friend like this. He says, Look, how long will you carry on speaking in this way? He's very callous. How long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? He says you're like a a hot wind that comes in and blows and and causes destruction in its path. I mean, we use sort of similar phrases today, don't we? We talk about people, hot wind, giving off too much wind, speaking too much. And and he says here, look, Job, you need to sit down and be quiet. The words you're saying, you know, you need to think very carefully. How dare you speak in this way? You come down into verse 4, listen to what he says. He says, if thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression. You cannot get any more callous than this. He says to Job, look, Job, your children have evidently died because of their sin. I mean, you can't get any more heartless than that, can you, to a man who's grieving the fact that he's lost ten children. It's as if he says to, to Job here, look, face the facts. Come on, Job, you've got, to, you've got to sort this out and face the facts. Your children are dead because they've sinned against God. And Bildad comes here in this very hard and unfeeling way towards Job. And in verses 5 through to 7 there, he, he basically informs Job, look, you, you also cannot be pure and upright in the sight of God." Look, he says, look, God would awake for you if you really were pure and upright. In verse 6 there, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of of thy righteousness prosperous. He says, look, you know, if you were a a godly man, if you were somebody who loved God and, and served him, these things wouldn't have happened to you. And if they do happen to you, well, then God will awake for you and step in because he's one of, you belong to him. And then from the the rest of the chapter, really, all the way down through, Bildad points the finger at Job and he accuses him of being a hypocrite, of being someone who had forgotten God. You notice that in our text. So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. He says, look, Job, this this is what you are. I've worked it out. You've been exposed 
God has now revealed to everyone your true identity. You had this appearance of being godly and being pure and being upright, but God has revealed it all. You, Job, are a hypocrite. Now the word that Bildad uses here for hypocrite, it literally means someone who is profane and godless. It conveys the idea of acting falsely, hence the reason why we have this word hypocrite in our English versions. It's, he's saying that you've got the semblance of religion, the semblance of righteousness. There's this, there's this outward appearance of righteousness, but underneath this, this cloak that you've got on, Job, there is a heart that's in opposition to God's. And so Bildad points the finger here at Job and he says, this is you. You're a profane man. You're a godless man. And you're hiding under this this cloak. And from verse 10, really, through to verse 19, Bildad gives this very detailed description of what a hypocrite is like. Now, as we we just noted, we need to realize that Bildad here is giving merely man's wisdom. He's very mistaken here in accusing Job and pointing the finger and, and accusing him of the sin of hypocrisy. In reality, of course, he couldn't have been further from the truth. Bildad was the one who was a hypocrite in many senses, and and Job was the one who was pure and upright in the sight of God. And we might also add that not only is he wrong in, in accusing Job of hypocrisy, but his thinking here concerning outward prosperity is also very wrong. It's very skewed. You see, Bildad, he has this, this sense that if a man or woman suffers great calamity in this life just as Job had done. He wrongly thinks that therefore God is displeased with them and that therefore they must be wicked, they must have sinned against God for such a great calamity to happen to them. You see, he foolishly thinks that outward prosperity will always follow the pious and the upright. And yet while we must say that Bildad is wrong in his accusation of Job, And while Bildad is wrong in viewing uh, outward prosperity being a blessing from God, what he says here concerning the hypocrite is true. Bildad goes on to describe the hopelessness of the hypocrites. And of course, Bildad here is talking, in in a sense, in a two-dimensional way. He's thinking that the hypocrite will be exposed and dealt with by God in this life. And that, of course, is is not always true. We so often see the wicked prosper and they go to their grave in all their prosperity and in all their their pomp and all their pride. But you see, in a a sense, in a three-dimensional sense, in the spiritual sense, what Bildad says here is absolutely true. You see, the hypocrite spiritually is doomed. The hypocrite spiritually is hopeless The hypocrite spiritually will perish. He may appear, of course, on the surface to outwardly prosper. He may appear to have the favor and the blessing of God. And, of course, he or she may deceive many in this life into thinking that they are truly a Christian and truly born again, perhaps. And yet, in the end, before the judgment seat of Christ, the hypocrite will be found wanting. And so as we come to this this passage this evening, these words of Bildad, as we apply them in that sense from a spiritual perspective, what Bildad says is true. The hypocrite's hope indeed 
will perish. There is a hopelessness to the hypocrites. And so I want us to consider really particularly with you from verse 11 through to verse 19 with you. Because Bildad in these verses, he uses three similes, three pictures to show us the the hopelessness of the hypocrites. And uh, for these three similes, he takes us outside. He takes us to look at the natural world. The natural world, of course, teems, doesn't it, with uh, pictures that furnish us with spiritual truths. And Bildad here, he he takes us outside and he shows us three things uh, from the natural world to show us what the hypocrite is like. And so I want us to consider these this evening as we think about this subject, the hypocrite's hopelessness. And I think it's worth just saying before I do, before we look at these, I think it's worth saying very plainly that I'm speaking especially to anyone tonight who falls into this category. Anyone who perhaps is hiding behind a veneer of religion, hiding under a cloak of piety. I pray tonight as we look at these things that. Uh, as we see the, the hopelessness of the hypocrite, that you'll realize that you need to turn to God and trust in him and that your rest and your hope will be in him and not in your semblance of religion and piety. Well, then let's come to the first of these similes this evening and you'll notice the first one is the rush there in verse uh, 11. The rush. Can the rush grow up without mire? Can the flag grow without water, Bildad says. He turns outside, he takes us out, as it were. You could imagine a bit like Christ on the Sermon on the Mount pointed to the birds and he pointed to the thing, the sower, as he was sowing and so on. You can imagine Bildad here as he's sitting down with Job, he's pointing to, to a rush. And he says to him, look, look at the rush. Can it grow up without mire? He's talking about the, the papyrus plant. It's a plant, of course, that grows in and around water very common around the banks of the Nile. It's the the same plant that books used to be made from and baskets and all sorts of other things. And uh, I suppose if you were to think of the equivalent in this land, you think of the bulrush that grows by lakes and rivers. If you go down to uh, the Ripon City wetlands, you'll see they've planted all uh, a large reed bed there by the canal. And uh, in a sense, that's the kind of plant that is being spoken about here. And Bildad draws our attention to uh, these plants. They require a vast amount of water. Can the flag grow without water, he says. They need vast quantities of water to spring up and to, to flourish. And he says here, look, they grow out of the mire. That's what he says there in verse 11. Can the rush grow up without mire? You see, these plants only thrive when their feet are grounded in the filth and in the rotten and water-legged, waterlogged soil and the mire. And you see, while there, there is this constant supply of water and mire, they grow very tall, they grow very uh, green, and they flourish and they thrive. Uh, they appear, don't they, to, to... They come up very quickly, they grow very tall. And this is the kind of thing that Bildad's pointing our attention to, the rush... He says, look at them, they, they appear to be thriving, they appear to be flourishing. And yet, of course, if you look more closely at a rush, it's, it's very often hollow and unsubstantial. You think how often in the Bible the, the rush or the reed is used as an emblem of somebody who, who leans upon it and then falls through it. 
They, they can't support your weight because there's not much to them. They would easily snap if you were to place your weight upon them. And in verse 12, Bildad says here, yeah, while it's in its greenness, and even when it's not cut down, it withers before any other herb. You see, the moment that water supply is cut off, the moment the mire disappears, even while it's, it's green and flourishing and growing, the plant withers and dies. Now, of course, those of you here who work on the land, you'll know this, you're very well aware of this. If you've got uh, topsoil that's saturated in a field, you've got waterlogging in a field, you get all sorts of undesirable plants that grow up very quickly, all sorts of grasses that grow very quickly. But the moment you put drainage into that field, they go, they die. You often look on the moors, you'll see that sort of patchwork and, and the difference between the fields that are green and, and flourishing and the ones where there is just heather is that there is drainage in place. And Bildad says here, the rush grows up when there's water and there's mire. But the moment you take that away, it withers and it dies. Now you have to remember that Bildad here is speaking about the hypocrite. He's speaking about the man who forgets God. And he says immediately after this in verse 13, so are the paths of all that forget God's. And the hypocrite's hope shall perish. He says, this is what the profane and the godless and the hypocritical man is like. He's like this rush. He grounds his life in the filth. He grounds his life in the mire and the filth of this world. Now, he may appear to be thriving. He may appear to be prosperous. He may be green, as it were. He may appear, in a sense, to be very godly and religious and to be blessed by God. But his profession is empty. It's unsubstantial. It's hollow like the, like the rush. And his hope, eternal hope, shall perish. Let me ask you this evening, what is it that forms the ground of your hope? What is it that you're grounding your life upon? Is it upon perhaps your worldly prosperity or is it perhaps your outwardly plausible profession of faith or religion? Perhaps you have a sort of a pretense of piety. You fooled everyone around you and yet the fact is you never acknowledge God. You forget him. In your soul, you, in a sense, you say, no God for me. There's no fear of God before your eyes. You flatter yourself. The words of your mouth are iniquity and deceit, as David says in Psalm 36. You see, perhaps outwardly you flourish like this green rush. You seemingly bloom and thrive. But you need to ask yourself tonight, friend, are my hopes and expectations presumptuous? This is how the rush grew. Take the water away, take the mire away, and it's gone. You remember what we read in Matthew chapter 7? Just turn back with me to Matthew chapter 7 and to verse uh, 21. These are the words of Christ. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. He says there, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many Many, do you see that? Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. 
And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. This has to be one of the most sobering sections of scripture that you can find. Christ says, look, there'll be many on that day who will come and and they will come before the judgment seat of Christ and they'll say, Lord, look at the things I've done in my life. Talk about all the things they've done for Christ. Look at the things I've done in thy name. But Christ will say to them, "I, I never knew you. You see, there was an outward pretense of religion and piety. But they were like the rush. Like the rush in its greenness, it withers before any other herb. And this is what uh, Christ is saying here in this passage in Matthew chapter 7. This is what Bildad is saying. That the hypocrite's hope shall perish. And of course Christ goes on, doesn't he, to talk about the wise and the foolish builder. There in Matthew chapter 7. He shows that the true Christian is building his life upon the rock of Christ. See, the true Christian does not ground his life in the mire and the filth of this world, but he grounds all his expectations and all his hopes in God. We just reflected on those words, didn't we? All my hope on God is founded. He doth still my trust renew. Let me ask you tonight, is that your, the experience that you know in your life? All my hope on God is founded. You see, we must ground ourselves in him. We must rest wholly upon Christ, the great saviour of sinners. David knew that, didn't he? Remember Psalm 40, that word of testimony that David gives there in the Psalms, how he, he was in the, uh, the miry clay. It was, he was in the horrible pits. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, he says, out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our gods. You see, that's, that's the true believer's hope. He knows what it is to be set upon the rock of Christ. He has a new song in his mouth. Let me just say to you, friends, tonight, it's a wonderful thing when you come and trust in Christ and you come wholly to lean upon him. There's a new song in your mouth. And you come to realise just how vain and foolish this world is, how it's, it's just mire. It's just rottenness. This world leaves you so empty. Hypocrite, let me say to you tonight, friend, let me say to you tonight, leave your wicked affections and your fleshly lust and seek after God's. So Bildad here says, look, the hypocrite in his first place is like a rush that grows up. But notice with me the second simile that Bildad uses here in chapter 8. The second thing that he uses is that of a spider. Look at verses 14 and 15. Still talking about the hypocrites. He says, whose hope shall be cut off and whose trust shall be a spider's web. He shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. Now, perhaps for some of you tonight, this is a bit of an unwelcome topic. Lots of people seem to have fears and phobias of spiders. We were thinking a little bit this morning about snakes, but we've got spiders this evening. Um, but I think we can all, to one degree or another, we can appreciate, can't we, the beauty of a spider's web. You go out, you know, on a, 
on one of those days and you, and you see that you know every bush and every gate and every fence just seems to have a, a beautiful spider's web and it just seems to be bedecked with with droplets that, like jewels hanging from it and you and you look at it and you see the intricacy and the wonder of it those little webs are just intricately and amazingly woven aren't they there's a wonderful precision to them the architecture of a, of a spider's web is just admirable isn't it and of course one of the interesting facts about the, the web of the, a spider is it's woven from its own bowels you know, birds build their nests by gathering materials. You think of an eagle, how it gathers things, and it builds its nest high up on a, on a crag or on a mountainside. It uses things to construct, its, to construct its home, but a spider constructs its own home from something that he produces from within himself. And here we have a picture of the hypocrites again. His trust and his security is built on his own ideas and his own inventions. The man who forgets God, who, who builds his life on his own religion or his own riches, his own philosophy, this is what the hypocrite does. It's all self-spun. That's really the sum and substance of the hypocrite. He trusts in himself. Everything that he trusts in is self-spun and, and self-shaped, just like a spider. He trusts in his own merit and his own sufficiency. And what he constructs outwardly may, may appear very beautiful. But don't be deceived. Because while it may be beautiful to the eye, while it may be con carefully constructed, Bildad makes the point here, it's extremely fragile. The thread of a spider is frail. That's the point that's being made here by Bildad. The slightest accident in a spider's web is just swept away in a moment. It can be destroyed it doesn't take much, does it, to get a cobweb and to brush it to one side. Beautiful in its structure, yes. But it's fragile in its texture. And ultimately it shall not endure. That's the key thought here. A spider's web is utterly unsubstantial. Look, he says here, you shall lean upon his house, but it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, but it shall not endure. And the same is true for the hypocrite, for the man who forgets God. His hope is thin and is frail and fragile. And in the end, it shall be cut off. It shall not stand. It shall not endure. His hope, his security, his prosperity, his trust will all one day perish. Somebody once said this on these verses. They said, though adequate to the builder's purposes... Yet being self-spun and self-built, it is destined to be swept away. And that's true of the hypocrite and his hope, destined to be swept away, destined to be lost. And friends, there's coming a day when God will judge every man according to his works. There's a day coming when everyone will stand before that judgment seat of Christ. And Paul says to us, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians, that every man's work shall be made manifest. He goes on to say, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. You see, on that day, the house that is built on sand will fall and great will be the fall of it. 
On that day, the wicked and the profane and the, and the hypocrite, the man who forgets God, all his deeds will be weighed in the balances and found wanting. Just turn over with me into Job chapter 27. Listen to what Job says. He's speaking again here about the hypocrites. Job 27 and verse 8. This is Job now speaking. He says, what is the hope of the hypocrite in chapter 27 and verse 8? What is the hope of the hypocrite? Though he have gained when God taketh away his soul. What has he gained? Oh, your web may look beautiful. It may be wonderfully constructed. It may bring much admiration. But what have you gained when God takes away your soul? Or we could turn to Proverbs 11. When a wicked man dieth, his expectation It's the same word. Same word is translated as hope here. His hope or his expectation shall perish. And the hope of unjust men perisheth. Proverbs 24, 20 says this, For there shall be no reward to the evil man. The candle of the wicked shall be put out. It's all the same ideas that Bildad's presenting to us here. Swept away. It shall not endure. It shall not stand. You know that hymn that we just reflected on? Did you notice the second verse there? If you've got the sheet, notice what it says on the, on the second verse. Pride of man and earthly glory, sword and crown, betray his trust. What with care and toil he buildeth, tower and temple fall to dust. You see, it's the same sentiments. You may spend your life building an empire. You may have so much money in the bank, you may have all sorts of things that you're relying and trusting in. But it would all fall to dust. But God's power, it says here, hour by hour, is my temple and my tower. You see, here's the great contrast between the hypocrites and the true believer. The believer's trust is in the Lord's. You see, the temples of this world shall fall. The hopes and stays that are constructed by man, of course, will ultimately crumble. But the believer's anchor is sure and steadfast. David went on in that psalm, Psalm 40. He says, blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust. You see, the believer knows even in the midst of trials and afflictions, just like Job did, that, in the, that whatever the God brings to him in this world, he can fly to God for refuge and safety. David said, didn't he, in in Psalm 62 and uh, verse 5, those wonderful words. This is what he said when he was looking to the rock that was higher than him. He says, my soul, wait thou only upon God for my expectation. Same word in the Hebrew. My hope is from him. Friends, tonight, what about you? Is God your hope? Is it in Christ who came and he left the glories of heaven and died in our place so that when you cast yourself upon him you have a hope beyond the grave that is sure and steadfast that can never be swept away. That you have that inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away is reserved in heaven. If you're relying on the things of this world or you're relying on your religion, whatever it might be, it will be swept away. 
you'll be cut off. So are all the paths of all that forget God and the hypocrite's hope shall perish. Well, then we've seen these two similes here that Bildad brings, the rush and the spider. And just notice lastly with me this third one, which is of a tree. He points us to a flourishing tree that's in a garden. Verse 16, he is green before the sun and his branch shooteth forth in his garden. His roots are wrapped around the heap and see if the place of stones, if he destroy him from his place, then it shall deny him, saying, I have not seen thee. The picture that he, he paints here, in a sense, is very similar to what we've already had before, particularly of the rush. But what he describes here is something a lot more substantial. The branches of this tree are, are shooting forth. This tree is green. It has roots. We know, of course, that roots are vital for a tree to grow strong and to, and to grow tall. And so this tree here certainly has the appearance of strength and stability. But the problem with this tree, you notice there, it's wrapped its roots around a heap of stones, around loose stones. The roots don't go down deeply into the soil. So while there is this appearance of stability, it wouldn't actually take much to dislodge this tree. A strong wind could come along and it might easily fell this tree, or a man could come along very easily and, and, and take it up. He says, if he destroy him from his place, if somebody could come along and, and bulldoze that tree to the ground, it wouldn't take much. And so while it sits pretty in this garden and it appears stable all the time, it's, it's actually very insecure. And Bildad goes even further with this picture because he says there uh, in verse 18 about this tree being destroyed. Uh, you can imagine, can't you, this tree that's blown down in the night or something. Uh, he talks about it, in a sense, being taken away. You can imagine a tree that's blown down and the farmer comes and he cuts up the various branches and uh, makes it into uh, logs and to, for firewood and, and the tree is taken away, the roots have gone, everything's disappeared and the field's just ploughed up and he says, look here, the, nobody remembers the place of this tree. It denies him saying, I have not seen thee. There was once a, a, what appeared to be a great and mighty tree in that field, but it's now gone. And you go on a generation and people have forgotten that tree. You think about all our, most of our homes are probably built upon places where there were once trees, but nobody remembers them anymore. And this is what Bildad is saying here. He says, look, the tree's gone. Something else has taken its place. Another tree's planted in place of it. A house is built. Is ploughed up and the fields uh, cultivated. And now the, the picture that Bildad's painting here is a familiar one that we find throughout the Bible, isn't it? We often find people in Scripture likened to trees. Psalm 37, verse 35, David says, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. In the Gospels, Christ tells parables, doesn't he? He tells a parable about a fig tree that was planted and it was dunged and it was cared for. Remember, it gave no fruit. It cumbered the ground and it was, uh, they refrained to begin with from plucking that tree up and uprooting it. It was a picture of those who, who reject the gospel and the graciousness of God's to dung and to care and to give the message of the gospel. He was speaking of the wicked who produced no fruits, 
no fruit of repentance in their lives, no turning to God, no love for him. And he says such trees deserve to be plucked up. They, they're cumbering the grounds. And again, here in Job, you see, the, the wicked, the hypocrite, is described as a tree that has the appearance of stability. And yet, ultimately, it's going to perish and be forgotten. And, of course, we have many examples of people who trusted in themselves in the Bible, don't we? Self-confident, who appeared to be like a, a great spreading tree that were prospering and blossoming. And yet at the end were humbled. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, he was even told in a dream that he was like a tree. But he was cut down. He was humbled by gods. Belshazzar mocked God, didn't he? But God's balances found him wanting too. You think of Haman, a man who was proud and conceited, self-important. He thought, didn't he, that he was going to be paraded through the streets on a, on a monarch's horse. But instead he was left hanging on a felon's uh, gallows, wasn't he? Herod, you remember in the New Testament, made his great oration. He was like a tree. He was, he, everyone sort of thought he was so you know, wonderful. You remember what happened to him when he was praised. He was proud, wasn't he? And he was eaten of worms and died. You notice how the order's reversed there. Most people die and they're eaten by worms. He was eaten of worms and then died. And friends, this evening it may appear that in this life everything goes swimmingly well for you. You may seem to prosper and thrive like a tree that's growing up. But remember what God says in his word. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And friends, sometimes the wicked man, the profane, the hypocrite, goes to his grave and he seems to have had a great life. On the surface, he seems to have prospered. Everything that he could ever have wished for has happened in his life. Everything that he desired, he got, despite living the most godless of lives. But listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. The same sentiments that Bildad uses here. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 13. This is what Christ says, but he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. It will be rooted up. You see, resting in carnal security, resting in an outward profession, whatever it may be, will always ultimately end in spiritual disaster. So can I implore you this evening as I close to think, what is it that you're resting in? Can you say, all my hope on God is founded? You notice what it said uh, in that hymn. It's a wonderful hymn. Christ doth call at the end. Last verse, Christ doth call one and all. Ye who follow shall not fall. You see, when it comes to eternity, you will stand before him and he'll present you faultless, and perfect and pure. You see, don't be a hypocrite hiding behind a false show of religion. Verse 13 says, our text this evening says, the hypocrite's hope shall perish. But you know, friends, the believer's hope shall endure forever. Why? Because the true believer's hope is in Christ. It's in his atoning death on the cross. It's in the work that he did in our place. 
bearing the wrath and the punishment of God. And you see, friends, tonight, unless your hope is in Christ, it is a hopeless hope. May each one of us here this evening have our hope and our trust and our confidence wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ.